0: Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton de France. What is the difference between miracles and magic? Find out the Bible answer next as we study Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 12. Trust and way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Acts chapter 8 verses 4 through 12. Acts 8 verses 4 through 12. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man named Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. In our last study we considered briefly the forward movement of God's purposes in the establishment and increase of His kingdom by the mysterious and often overlooked workings of His providence. Brother Stephen was murdered, but in his death He manifests the most amazing and powerful transformation into the image of Christ ever before seen. To the world, it appeared that evil had won, but to the enlightened observer, it was a victory for God. Next is an outgrowth of the murder of Stephen. Saul of Tarsus, who was present and active in Stephen's assassination, began a full-scale assault on the other Hellenistic Christians in Jerusalem and one with such burning intensity that none who remained in the city would escape with their faith and their lives, so they fled. But through that persecution, Acts 8 and verse 4 says, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. To the world it looked like evil had won, but to the enlightened observer it was a victory for God. Before His crucifixion, In Matthew 24 verses 1 through 36 and its parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, Jesus had charted out the future of Jerusalem by the spirit of prophecy. He predicted the city's fall and utter annihilation by the Romans in uh, AD 70 under General Titus. He furthermore offered warning signs by which his disciples could discern that the end was drawing closer and finally had arrived and could escape the city with their lives. Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14, Jesus said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This charts out a long stretch of about 35 years, beginning here in Acts chapter 8 and extending to the last few years before the city's fall. Jesus said that the idealistic utopian environment that existed among the Jerusalem Christians during the first three years after Pentecost would not last. Persecution would come and it would grow bitter and harsh. But through the persecution in Jerusalem, he says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Modern preachers have a tendency to read these prophecies as something even in our own future, but we have the privilege of seeing them at least partially fulfilled in the book of Acts an inauguration of this eschatological vision. It's starting right here. Through this persecution, the global conquest of the kingdom of God is beginning. Several Bible scholars have observed something about the early days of the Jerusalem church that they think resembles the world at the time of the Tower of Babel. They are staying together. They're making a name for themselves instead of going out to fill the whole world with the knowledge and glory of the Lord according to His purpose. And so God moves in, like He did in Genesis chapter 11, to scatter them. I'm not sure that I agree with that interpretation. I'll not dismiss it out of hand, but I see no indication that up to this point God has been displeased with what the disciples in Jerusalem were doing quite the contrary he is blessing them and he's working with them i rather see this period as something that is happening exactly according to god's purpose the kingdom of messiah has begun in jerusalem and the remarkable experience of the christians there is laid out as a model or prototype of the otherworldliness and supernatural love and unity that god wishes to be spread throughout Judea and Samaria next, and finally, into the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, that was primarily a task assigned to the apostles in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. They had a unique and an indispensable role in laying the foundation of Christian faith through their witness to Christ and His teaching, and through the dissemination of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. To do this completely, it was necessary for them to go into all the world Mark 16 and verse 15. But they did not get to that right away. Instead, they linger in Jerusalem for about 16 years. Why did they do this? There are likely multiple factors and some we're going to consider in later chapters when that time finally comes. They do leave Jerusalem and they begin the final stages of the work. But an older suggestion Then the critical and negative view that we noticed a moment ago comes to us from Clement of Alexandria and the ancient church historian Eusebius and it is that the apostles were instructed by Jesus to spend 12 years in Jerusalem before going out into the rest of the world. We don't know for certain but we can test these suggestions as we continue to work through the inspired record in our studies. What we do know is that this persecution does not move the apostles. Luke specifically tells us that they were unaffected and remained in Jerusalem. Yet I believe we shall see that this was most certainly God's work paving the road for the fullness of the kingdom out of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world. When the persecution broke out, they, again, it's the Hellenistic Christians, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. These are the second stage areas for the plan of expansion given by Jesus in Acts 1 and verse 8. Verse 4 continues, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Those who were scattered were not just qualified men sent out on a mission, but they were ordinary Christians, if there is such a thing. They had been upset from the regular course of life. They lost their jobs, their homes, their connection to their brethren. They became a Christian diaspora to roam about seeking stability in which to rebuild their broken lives. But everything is different for them now. They may have left behind most of their possessions in Jerusalem, but there is something that they could not be parted from by persecution. They took their faith with them. And everywhere they went, they shared it. If you have listened to our past studies, you know that I believe there were church officers already at this time. I see evidence that deacons, evangelists, and even elders were already present in the Jerusalem congregations. But what we read about here is the whole mass of Christ's people. And we see that the growth of the kingdom of Jesus is not simply a task assigned to preachers, but it is an essential aspect of the Christian life that is not removed by even the most difficult and troublous circumstances. Preaching the word doesn't mean that they were writing sermons and climbing into pulpits. It means they were sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, making converts to Christ, and explaining what they had learned from the apostles regarding the new life in the last days according to Jesus' authority. They might have done this publicly, they might have done it from house to house, or in any other setting or arrangement that they could find. One of these disciples was an officer of the church. When we meet Philip, he is ordained a deacon, along with Stephen, And it seems that Stephen moved out of the deaconate, even before the persecution, and became something more like what the Bible calls an evangelist. We know that Philip is an evangelist because the Bible explicitly applies that title to him in Acts 21 and verse 8. When did he transition from deacon to evangelist? We don't know. It might have resulted from the persecution. Likely the congregation where he served had disbanded and its members had fled to other places. But regardless, we see him now going about and preaching the gospel. Verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. There are two things in this verse that are vitally important. Where Philip went and what Philip preached. The city of Samaria was the old capital of this infamous region in the northern part of Palestine between Judea and Galilee. Shechem was in the southern part of the region, and Samaria was high in the northeast. It had been renamed Sebaste, after Caesar Augustus, by Herod, who fortified the city when it was awarded to him by the Romans. Some manuscripts say that Philip went to a city, and scholars who favor that reading suppose that it was Shechem, but the better support seems to be in favor of the city, which would be Sebaste or Samaria, whichever city it was, It was in the region of Samaria uh, and populated by the Samaritan people, which was an interesting choice for Philip. While it is true that Jesus had instructed that Samaria be included in Christian evangelization, he said the same thing about the Gentiles, and yet the Jewish disciples had a very difficult time accepting that. So for Philip to willingly take Christ to Samaria is a very interesting thing. Dr. David Peterson observes that the first century was a time of strained relations between these neighbors. The Samaritans were in some respects similar to the Jews. There's debate as to whether or not they were actually genealogically related according to biblical testimony. If there was any Jewish blood in the line, it was very faint. 2 Kings 17, 24-41 says that the king of Assyria replaced the Israelite inhabitants of this land with refugees from around Mesopotamia. These people did not know where they were living. They found it very difficult to deal with local wildlife, and they determined that the problem was they did not know the god of the land. They were henotheists who believed in territorial gods, and they didn't know the god of this territory, and they could not make appropriate sacrifices to him. So the king of Assyria sent one of the priests that he had taken out of Samaria, who would have come from Jeroboam's corrupted priesthood, and told him to teach the local religion to the Samaritans. In the end, they simply added Yahweh to the polytheistic pantheon they had brought with them from elsewhere, according to 2 Kings 17 and verse 33. And, of course, what they did was not pleasing to the Lord. In the process of time... They developed a strong affinity for the God of Israel, however, and they came to worship Him exclusively, or their conception of Him exclusively. According to Ezra chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, they tried to be a part of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after the Jews returned from exile, but they were forbidden on the basis of the permission that the Jews had received from the Persian rulers. And there was probably a trepidation about involving themselves with anyone outside the covenant after what had happened before. Uh, This began an intensifying relationship of bitterness between the peoples. Customs like the circumcision of infant boys were fully embraced by the Samaritans, and they took a name for themselves that identified them as true keepers of the Torah. However, the Torah they used was altered from the Hebrew original. In 409 B.C., a man named Manasseh, who was the son of the high priest in Jerusalem, was expelled from the city by Nehemiah because of an unlawful marriage. He found refuge in Samaria and helped them build their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and a great deal of mythology and lore developed about that temple over time, in fact, There were changes made, even to the book of Deuteronomy, to reflect that this temple was the one divinely appointed by God. It was destroyed in 127 BC by John Hyrcanus, which led the Samaritans to retaliate by spreading human bones in the court of the temple in Jerusalem. After the physical altercation subsided under the stabilizing influence of Rome, The animosity transferred to name calling and to parents teaching their children to think terrible things about those who came from the other community. We see the effects of this tension in the Gospels. But Jesus ignores it and works against it even though the disciples struggled to understand and accept his attitude. So why did Philip come here? Was he consciously fulfilling Jesus' instruction? to invade this place with the gospel? Or was he just running to a territory where it was unlikely a legalist like Saul of Tarsus would come after him? It's difficult to say. But if there was any trace of prejudice or bigotry in Philip's heart, Luke fails to mention it. He does not record Philip as an embittered exile refusing to sing songs in a strange land. He simply says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ, to them, It is meaningful that he preached Christ to them, and not only because it informs us that Christ is the centerpiece of the gospel, but in the theology of the Samaritans that developed after their exposure to Yahweh and the Hebrew Scriptures, they had formed their own concept of a Messiah who they called the Taheb. The Taheb would be a prophet like Moses and a great teacher that would settle all religious disputes and unite the people in truth The woman at the well of Sychar reflected this in John chapter 4 and verse 25. But when Philip came among them, he preached the real bringer of truth was also a bringer of salvation and a bringer of God's authoritative rule over the world. Verse 6, "...and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did." For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. We need to put these events in the proper order. Luke explains the relationship between the people heeding the things spoken by Philip and seeing the miracles that he did, that they responded to his preaching because the miracles convinced them that he was a true messenger of God. However, the logical and chronological sequence would be that Philip preached Christ, he worked miracles, the people were convinced by the miracles to give careful attention to the things Philip preached, and to respond to them. There's an action implied in that term. And then, as a consequence of their responding to Philip's preaching about Christ, there was great joy in the city. We definitely need to have this order of things etched into our minds because it represents a pattern that every case of conversion in the book of Acts will follow meticulously. Preaching leads to acceptance or faith, and faith leads to an obedient response, and great joy follows the obedient response. Verses 9-11. through But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. We'll discuss Simon and the information given about him more in our next study, but I want to consider the reason for his introduction here. Simon was a sorcerer, or a magician, and his works are brought into the narrative in contrast to the miracles worked by the power of the risen Lord Jesus. Two questions naturally arise from this text. First, what is sorcery? And second, how did Simon's sorceries differ from the miracles worked by Philip? Sorcery is mentioned in both the Old and New Testaments, and it is consistently condemned by God in the strongest possible terms. Under the old system, a person who practiced it was put to death. Exodus 22, 18, Leviticus 19, 27, and other examples as well. In the teachings of the apostles, sorcery is called a work of the flesh that will result in exclusion from the kingdom of heaven and eternal retribution in hell. Galatians 5, 19-21, Revelation 21, 8. The most detailed description of sorcerous practices is from Deuteronomy 18 verses 10 through 11 and essentially it embraces different forms of astrology and efforts to communicate with the dead and to manipulate the otherwise unmanipulatable natural order of the world for personal gain, out of worldly, carnal, selfish motives. All things in the scripture considered I believe the Bible teaches that sorcery is a deceptive work rather than a supernatural but demonic work. It is what we call a leisure domain, or sleight of hand trickery, but particularly when done not simply to entertain, but under the pretense of expressing real supernatural power. I do not believe that the devil has the ability to work miracles or to enable human beings to work miracles. As Nicodemus expressed to Jesus, the conviction of the righteous and well-informed in truth has always been that no one can do the signs that Jesus and his apostles did unless God is with him. John chapter 3 and verse 2. Now one may ask, why then was this such a harsh punishment against sorcerers? Of course, the simple answer could be that God is truth and hates those who promote lies and falsehoods. But in this case, I think there's something especially wicked about this lie that makes it especially heinous to God. Sorcery represents an effort to replace God with human strength and wisdom. You might call it a living expression of idolatry. And it furthermore represents an idea or an effort to normalize those things that God uses as a witness to Himself so that they are no longer so impressive. Especially in seasons when miraculous manifestations of divine power are not taking place, superstition always detracts from the glory of Christ. We've seen it in the New Age movement and in its heirs that promote various forms of occult mysticism. We see it in paganism all over the world. In the end, it is always the same. Christ is degraded and man is exalted, and this kind of thing has no place in the kingdom of God. It is counteractive to the kingdom's purposes. But consider what happened when the real power of God was put on display alongside the fakery and charlatanry of the devil's people immediately. Those who had been astonished and given heed to the sorcerer turned from him to the real power of God. True miracles outshine magic like the sun outshines a flashlight. Several years ago there was a young Jewish man named Danny Coram who had become an accomplished light of hand magician and a journalist. And he made a name for himself by exposing modern-day sorcerers his exceptional insight into the tricks of the trade enabled him to see what others had missed, and he demonstrated the fraudulency of people who claim to be psychics and to speak with the dead and things of that sort of a nature. After hearing a Christian evangelist, Coram decided that he would expose the fraudulent miracles of Jesus and the apostles as well. He applied his investigative powers to each aspect of the biblical record and after a thoughtful examination, he became a Christian. And has written two excellent works, uh, The Fakers and a book called Powers, it helped to explain the factual differences between the two true miracles of primitive Christianity and deceptive magic as practiced throughout history and in the modern world. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. What did Philip preach? He preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. The very things Jesus had discussed during the forty days between His resurrection and ascension into glory, the very theme of the book of Acts, the last days are here, the final age of God's work in the world when sin and Satan are being defeated and will be increasingly defeated and all things will be restored to God's perfect order and the message of the kingdom cannot be shared apart from the message of the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus embraces His glorious works and His glorious nature from which His absolute authority derives. And when these things were believed, the Bible says both men and women were baptized. The last twelve verses of Mark are acted out in the book of Acts again and again. In spite of the controversy today over who wrote those lines and how they should be regarded in the realm of textual criticism, anyone who accepts the authority of Luke in the book of Acts cannot deny the truth of what they say. They record Jesus' great commission to the apostles in these words, Mark sixteen fifteen through 16 Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Now, remember the sequence of conversion we saw earlier in this same reading. Preaching leads to acceptance or faith or belief. Belief leads to an obedient response giving heed to that which is said and great joy follows the obedient response. The obedient response of the gospel is to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. We see it first on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38. We see it still in Samaria. We will see it throughout the whole book and throughout the whole world. This is God's plan for the salvation of the lost, and the increase of his kingdom. The preaching of the gospel, belief on that preaching, and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at Tulsa Church of Christ at gmail or visit Tulsa Church When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, the Lord in the light of his word, in the, the light Lord, of his word, what a glory he sheds us. All we do is good will. He abides with us still. He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. No other way. Other way. Trust and obey, Trust and obey.